1510 WMEX Quincy Boston and 101.1 FM W266DQ Quincy WMEX Quincy Boston streaming at WMEXBoston.com and on your smart speaker just say play WMEX The greatest hits of all time are back this is the all new WMEX WMEX Boston Singing all night, drinking wine, spooty oolie, drinking wine. Wine, spooty oolie, drinking wine. That's right, it's time for Wine by Design with Len here on 1510 WMEX and 101.1 FM in Quincy. Len is a certified wine educator with over 30 years in the wine industry, and on top of that, a WMEX good guy. Stay tuned and take a listen. Bust out that wine glass and learn something here on Wine by Design with your host, Len Prasuti. Well, thank you, Ben. I just want to remind everyone, as always, we love having your questions here. You can either call WMEX at 781-834-9639. That's 781-834-9639. Or email me at lenwmex at gmail.com or l-e-n-w-m-e-x at gmail.com. And I'm happy to say that the podcasts are up and going at wmexboston.com. You can either get them there or search Wine by Design on your favorite platform. But on to the fun and business of wine that we have tonight. As always, I love starting off with a question from you out there. Karen from East Bridgewater, Massachusetts, said, My husband and I drink Pinot Grigio. Do you have any recommendations for us? Wow, what a great question. We drink more Pinot Grigio at my house than any other wine. And I have some that I think are really going to click with a number of you out there. First thing I wanted to do, though, is talk just a little bit about the grape and and all that and what we're dealing with. So the name of the grape, Pinot Grigio, or Pinot Gris, as they say in French, means gray Pinot. And it's actually more of a red grape than a white one. It's It can have this kind of um, grayish-blue uh, color in warm regions, but typically has this deep pink going into a purple. Now, usually it's made into white wine because with white wine, you press the wine off the skins before it can pick up any color from the skins. But there has been a return, especially in Italy, to making a copper-colored wine called Ramado by actually fermenting the wine on its skins. That's been going on for ages in Italy, and it kind of fell out of favor, but it's coming back. And Man, it can make a really fascinating, interesting wine. But the grape originated in France, where it's called, again, Pinot Gris. It makes this big, round, soft wine with lower acidity, but a lovely perfume. They use that same grape in Oregon, and that's why they call it Pinot Gris there, the same clone of that grape that in the beginning, gave them exactly the same kind of wine, or very close to it, a little bit fresher, a little spicier than it did in France. But lately, they've been picking earlier. So 
it's much more aromatic and it has a brisk acidity to it. They're doing it for the freshness there. And it's changed, um, changed its character quite a bit as of late. But we are talking Pinot Grigio. So we are talking Italy. And they use a slightly different clone there that can still make really, really good wine, but it tends to be a little bit higher in acidity. Um, it's gotten a little bit of a bad rap over the years because years ago, people used to really overproduce the grapes and they wouldn't have much flavor to them. And they were really kind of insipid. Nobody particularly wanted to drink them. But at that same time, they were making really high quality wines in Friuli in the Alto Adige regions. But now everything's changed in that the quality has come up dramatically, even with the mass-produced wines, it's very high. One of the things that uh, help there, too, is going to screw caps, believe it or not. It used to be that we'd receive in the Pinot Grigios from Italy, and they'd last maybe a year. But my God, they changed in that year to the point where at the end of that year, they were really fading. The fruit was fading. They were getting really dull. And man, if the new vintage didn't come in right away and we had to stretch that out for another few months, it wasn't, it wasn't fun. But now with a screw cap, it maintains its freshness through the whole first year, second year, and sometimes even into the third year. Um, it, it's really amazing what a difference that has made. But we were talking about some of the kind of mass-produced ones, and I want to talk about the two that are the favorites of the Prasuti household here. The first one, we always use two because we, as you know, are very, very into wine and food matching. So we have one that's just kind of light, fresh, a little bit lower in alcohol, maybe a little bit more simple, but still fun to drink, and then one that's a little bit more serious. Actually, both of these retail for about $14, but you can get discounts if you buy them by the case, which is certainly what I advocate and what I do. The first one is the Baron Fini from Valdadige. Uh, it's amazing for a grape that's you know, in a, 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 a bottle that they're only charging $14 for, that they're hand-picking them in the Northern Alps. Man, have they been making wine a long time there. The Bon Martini and the Feeney families married and got together in 1479. And they've been making wine there ever since, um, over 500 years. Now, it says 12.5% alcohol on the label. I suspect that that's lower. You know, you have a percent and a half to play with from the stated alcohol level. My guess would be closer to that 11 and a half, maybe 12. But the wine, as I mentioned, is just a lot of fun. It's floral. It's got this fresh kind of appley mineral thing going on, a really bright acidity, works really well with spicy foods. We eat spicy foods a lot. And because of that lower alcohol level, it tends to work a little bit better in that situation. But the one that we drink the most of, and I have to admit it, I've probably had more bottles of this wine than any other single wine, period, uh, 
is the Depinti Pinot Grigio, the uh, Vignette della Dolomiti. So it's from the Dolomites. And my God, does that wine over deliver. We're always on the lookout for a very, very good Pinot Grigio that has a tremendous amount of depth and complexity at a great price. And we've been drinking this wine, geez, it's got to be well over a decade. Meantime, we're always trying new things in that price range. And trust me, if we could find one that was better, we'd immediately switch over to it. But this wine is just incredible. It's got a lot of depth to it. It's got this kind of almond and apricot thing going on. Uh, citrus, uh, a really long finish, very, very complex for the price point. And, you know, it's not by accident. It's actually the brainchild of one woman, Leah Banfield, Banfield Wine Merchants, and her team select the wines that go into this. They make it at the La Vis Catine Sociale, which is a cooperative. But, you know, cooperatives can be good or bad. These people really are quality-oriented and make phenomenal wine. They do their best to bring in the grapes in perfect condition and uh, make them as well as they can be made. They're using higher-density plantings than most. And the other big thing here is the vines are between 20 and 25 years of age. That's really kind of old vine stuff for a modestly priced Pinot Grigio like this. Uh, we actually buy this in multiple case lots. We buy it three cases at a time because it helps us to get a better price. And everybody I know in the wine business is always trying to save money. So that gets one of my highest recommendations of all time, the Pinti Pinot Grigio. Now to go on to a few other ones. There are really, really nice ones that are so good that, in a sense, many people wouldn't even recognize them as Pinot Grigio in a blind tasting. First one I want to mention is the Bortoluzzi uh, Pinot Grigio. It's based out of Friuli, but I actually had a chance to visit them many years ago. We were the very first people to visit them with Giovanni, the father, and his three children that at that time were doing pretty much all the work anyway. They've subsequently taken over and are running it. The father's just kind of standing back in an advisory capacity. My God, have they done a great job there. This wine is so rich and deep and long. It, it almost has more in common with the Chardonnay in terms of the depth and complexity of the actual way the wine tastes much more close to that than uh, to a Pinot Grigio. That again, too, is not by accident. Giovanni started out as a vineyard manager, and he was managing vineyards through this entire larger area. He came to know which plots produced the very, very best fruit. And as they became available for sale, he bought them up. And they're Five different vineyards go into the Bordeluzzi regular Pinot Grigio. It's based from the Isonzo region of Friuli, which is one of the top quality regions from, uh, from all of Italy to make great, great Pinot Grigio. 
but the kids have taken it even further. When I first knew them, they were just making uh, in the thousands of bottles. They've now bumped that up to 200,000 bottles. And they're making wines now with uh, some skin contact. They do a sparkling Pinot Grigio. Whoever heard of a sparkling Pinot Grigio? Like, this is the first one I think I've really come in contact with. They give it a little bit of skin contact, so it looks a little pink, but it has a tremendous amount of depth and flavor. So Bordeluzzi is really a wine to seek out. It's around $20 or so, too, so uh, a really, really great value there. The other one I wanted to talk about, and wow, it, did they make a Pinot Grigio that's totally different, is Alois Legator. He's just kilometers from the Austrian border there. And they, they kind of have both cultures going on there at the same time. But the thing that really drew me to it in, in his winery was the fact that it is, to this day and many, many decades ago, was the greenest winery I had ever heard of. In addition to making sure that there are no pesticides or anything like that on the grapes. They, they're beyond organic. They do biodynamic, which is a method of even greater purity that gives the wine even a bigger sense of coming from that area. They treat the whole vineyard as a living entity. And when they do any process, they take into consideration the stages of the moon and all that. I know it sounds a little bit like mumbo jumbo, but my God, it really does give the wines a lot more purity. And again, for want of a better term, that sense of place. You know, they couldn't come from anywhere other than these vineyards. But the green goes beyond the vineyards there. He won't even allow any people near elect, uh, electron fields because he feels that it's bad, that it, there'll be adverse effects with the people. He has tons of solar panels to the point where he's actually selling electricity back to the town. And the coolest thing about his winery, if you ever have a chance to visit him there, it's built into a mountain. I mean, it is built into the mountain and around it. The rock of the mountain is exposed in his actual wine cellar where it helps maintain the uh, the temperature because it's it's very cool, especially being that far north. And the moisture that drops off it from the melting snow helps keep the, the vineyards moist and all that. It's just really amazing. They do a great job there with, believe it or not, 20 different varietals. But Pinot Grigio is where they really shine. They do have kind of a normal one. They'd refer to it as the normale, but they have a, a single vineyard called the poor Pinot Grigio. And the thing that makes that so interesting, it's comprised of three different components. So the first part of the wine, what they do is they press some of the grapes immediately off the grapes, off the uh, grape skins, which you would like with any Pinot Grigio, any white wine. So you have that for freshness, then they take another portion and they leave it in contact with the grape skins for 15 hours. Now, 
That might not sound like a long time, but it really can pick up a decent amount of flavor and depth there, but still retains a very kind of vibrant quality. But the thing that sets them apart is that third portion that they age on skins for eight months. So that's very rich, very deep, really kind of uh, copper colored. And the wine is incredibly complex. Uh, but the other thing they do there that's amazing, and I haven't really seen this done in a commercial level before, is they sell you a kit of the three barrel samples, a bottle of each, so you can blend your own exactly the way you'd like it. The only other one I wanted to mention very quickly is Silvio Yerman. Does a great, great Pinot Grigio that uh, is more or less like the more normal types. They're not like this over-extracted or anything like that. Um, and it, it's relatively modestly priced. It's in that $35 range or something like that, 30 But why I wanted to mention him was Pinot Grigio's in, lovers in particular tend to like light fresh wines without a lot of oak presence. And when you're celebrating a big occasion, most of the more expensive wines have oak on them. It really hurts their ability to work with food. With Yerman, he does this vintage Tunino, which is a field blend that sees no apparent oak. And it might be a little bit of old oak in the background somewhere there, but it's a wine that sells for about $80. It's been considered the finest wine of Italy forever. He's actually been named the number one white winemaking uh, winemaker in all of Italy. And I did want to mention that to you, that if you are a Pinot Grigio lover and are looking for a really nice bottle, his would be certainly a way to go. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about just a bit is finishing off the tasting uh, process that we talked about. Where we left off was in the actual smelling, nosing of the wine or the olfactory examination. And we talked about how you take a couple of quick sniffs, you have to put it down, you can't keep sniffing it. Then what you need to do is write down your impressions. You can write a whole tasting note on the wine just from the nose. If it's a bright nose, the wine has high acidity. If it's a dull nose, it's low acidity. You get all the fruits and the spices and the herbs and the mineralities, the specific one, as we discussed before, from the nose rather than the palate. And you write all of those down. Back when I was being tested on blind tasting and we had to show our notes, very often we do a complete tasting note just on the nose. And then when we tasted it, just write a palate follows nose. So that's a big, important part. And we talked about doing the aroma wheel to give you ideas on how to go from the general to the more specific fruits in that. If you have any uh, problems with it, let me know and I'd be happy to help out. But now the, the, the star of our show actually tasting it. This is when we actually get to put the uh, wine in our mouth, what they refer to as the gustatory exam. The biggest single tip that I can give you that will dramatically increase your tasting ability is just leave it in your mouth for a longer period of time. Those of us in the trade usually use a minimum of 10 seconds. That can go up to 20 or more when you're tasting a big tannic wine and trying to go through the tannins. 
Might not sound like a long time, but 10 seconds is a long time to keep wine in your mouth. And what happens there is the warmth from your mouth warms the wine in your mouth and starts to release these aromas and flavors that you wouldn't otherwise get. And you're going to notice that those flavors just dis- seem to really super saturate your palate. It's, uh, it's amazing what a difference that can make. The other thing you really need to learn to do is to whistle in a little air. And that's via a small opening with the lips. And the uh, when you whistle it in, like that fast airstream going over the wine in your mouth explodes the bouquet of the wine in your mouth and via the retronasal canal hooks up with your olfactory sense again. So you're now bringing the sense of smell into it. Um, If you haven't tasted the wine before like that, you're going to be amazed at how much you can get out of it. But what I'm going to tell you to do next is perhaps the hardest part. Don't pay any attention to anything that you got from the first taste. The first taste is really a false flag there. What's happening is your palate is adjusting to the pH and all that and the different fruit flavors and the acidity of the wine. And that's such a shock to your palate that the wine won't reveal its true flavors with the first taste. And what you're going to get is it's going to be harsh. Um, It's going to lack the fruit flavors that you might expect from it um, and all that. So what you do want to do now is taste it again. We in the trade use that second taste as a palate cleanser. Real wine pros don't believe in palate cleansers. Anything you put in your mouth before you put that uh, next wine in your mouth is going to change the flavor of it more than not putting anything in it. If you had to do something, Cars Water Crackers is fairly neutral. But even water, if you rinse your mouth with water, it'll strip the mouth of the saliva in it. And it's that interaction with the wine and the saliva that creates flavor. As well as I know this, you know, you're at a tasting, it's going on for a couple hours, you get thirsty. And I swear, yeah, I drink a bottle of water because I'm thirsty. And I don't wait long enough before I go back. You know, I want to want to get tasting again. And they get nothing out of the first wine. And then it goes to me, ah, okay, okay. I just drank all that water. It's going to take a while for it to to come back. Really does make a uh a a big difference there. So now with that second taste, you're going to want to pay attention to a lot of the different elements of the wine, the weight, the balance, the depth, complexity, and the length and all that. And take notes on all of those things. It's the flavor weight is pretty directly related to the alcoholic content of the wine and uh, is something that is, is fairly easy to to, to pick out. It's been likened to milk, you know, like a, a skim milk would be like a light wine, a, a 2% medium wine, a full milk or full cream or cream would be like a fuller bodied wine. But you want to pay attention to that, the balance, how the fruit balances off the uh, acidity and 
how the tannins seem to integrate into the whole thing, the amount of depth it has, and the complexity. You want to take notes on all that. One of the big, big things, however, is the length. After you spit or swallow, the flavors in your mouth keep going on as if the wine were still in your mouth. And that's referred to as length. That can go on for several seconds and sometimes up to a minute or more. That's considered to be a really, really good thing. And that's what we're looking for. The longer the finish, the better the wine. I know I was doing a tasting of this phenomenal vintage of Burgundy, the 1990 Burgundies when they first came on market. And I had to limit them. So what I would do is I'd taste through a producer and I was actually timing the finishes. And the wine that I decided to put in from that producer was based on how long the finish was. So that's about it for the tasting aspect. The one thing I did want to mention, however, is do not rinse your glass with water at a wine tasting. I was at a professional wine tasting where, you know, the the gentleman is trying to sell wine to us. And Olivier Hombrick of the Zint Hombrick Winery in Alsace, big, imposing man, literally screamed at someone that was rinsing their glass in water. And they said, that's like two inches of rain at harvest. I mean, it was horrible. Everyone's so embarrassed for the person. But there is truth to that because what happens is water has cohesive properties. So it sticks to the glass more and it really can dilute that next wine more than just emptying the previous wine that had alcohol in it. So it tends to empty pretty thoroughly there. If you absolutely have to rinse the glass, you're technically only supposed to use the wine that you're then going to be tasting in that glass. You can get into trouble with that at wine tastings when there's a limited amount of wine out there, though. So, as always, if you have any questions on the whole how to taste thing, please let me know. I'd be happy to answer them for you. And the last thing I wanted to touch upon is Christmas is in a few days here. And if you're having trouble finding a gift for someone, a bottle of wine makes a great gift. I know we talked about all the different things like corkscrews and wine preservation systems in that last week. But I thought I'd just mention a, a few favorites in a, a few different categories. These are all going to be uh, from America. But the first is the Chardonnay category. Uh, if whoever you're buying for likes a big buttery Chardonnay, the one that's really the one you're looking for is the Rombauer. It's made by the same people that do the Joy of Cooking cookbook. So the whole food and wine thing is in their family, but extremely buttery. Um, the 2021 got a 92 rating from the Wine Spectator, a very good rating from them. And they were talking about marzipan and cream soda, marmalade, apricot preserves. But it does have enough spiciness to it and enough acidity to keep it all kind of in balance. And uh, for $40, it's a very, very uh, nice gift for the Chardonnay lover in your life. If they don't happen to like Coke and you still want to buy a Chardonnay, there's one out there, the Mersolet Silver, that's unoaked. They actually list it as the Silver Unoaked Chardonnay. And that's been aged in a combination of stainless steel 
and unlined concrete vats that really kind of boost up the minerality of the wine. Uh, really lovely kind of pear, a bit of spice and citrus in that. And that's a real value at, at $18. But my favorite Chardonnay, I have to admit, is the Schaefer Red Shoulder Ranch. It's from Carneros, and it gets the name Red Shoulder Ranch, the vineyard, from the red-shouldered hawks that would frequent the area. That is spectacular stuff, year in and year out. Um, Elias Fernandez, an amazing winemaker, worked there for 40 years. Um, he did a barrel tasting that I'll, I'll have to tell you about at a, uh, at a later date because we're running out of time here. And I just wanted to go through a couple cabs. Joel Gott, their um, Cabernet 815 makes a nice, you know, $20, $22 bottle. Very easy to drink, but it's got some depth to it. Um, Rodney Strong, the Knights Valley for 30 really is a, a fairly big step up with some licorice and tobacco notes and all that. But if you really want to go to the top, I'm going to recommend two quickly. One is Camus which is year in, year out, considered one of the famous, uh, most famous and best Cabernets out there. It's in that $80 to $90 range, very big, intense, lots of chocolate in cassis, uh, but iconic stature. It's kind of like bringing a bottle of Dom Perignon to a, a, a tasting. Everybody recognizes it. And if you are pulling out the stops totally, I've had the opportunity to go a number of wine tastings where we've done all these very, very expensive, all the bells and whistles, Cabernets. And without exception, the one everyone seems to gravitate to or seems to get the most votes is the Joseph Phelps Insignia. Incredibly complex. Um, so much going on there. Really long, I, I mean, delicious, a profound wine. Um, and it's $275, so it is kind of very special there, but it's worth it. You know, sometimes we get some people together, everybody chips in. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, just wanted to mentioning you've been listening to Wine by Design with Len on 1510. I just wanted to wish everyone out there a very, very, very Merry Christmas. And till we meet again next week, all the best in wine and life. Fifteen ten WMEX Quincy Boston and one hundred one point one FM W two six six DQ Quincy.